Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. Jesus said, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. You know, so many times our response is, I love them. I'm just not really sure I like them. You know, church really is an amazing animal. We make big, big claims about who we are as the body of Christ, but we can sometimes let the smallest things cause great and really unnecessary pain and conflict. Maybe you've been in church before where, well, let's just say that, that less than consequential things have resulted in very consequential disagreements. Church Answers is a leadership and coaching, a leadership coaching and research organization for churches. And a couple years ago, they posted the results of an informal survey identifying some of the most interesting conflicts that churches have gotten into. One was an argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. Um... Another one that I thought this was interesting, a fight over whether or not to build a children's playground or to use the land for a cemetery. I feel like that's not necessarily mutually exclusive. Uh, You know, do it in the same space. (laughs) This is a great one. A church dispute over whether or not to install restroom stall dividers in the women's restroom. Yeah, we're over budget in the building fund, so, uh, you know, we had to cut somewhere. (laughs) A church argument and a vote to decide whether a clock in the worship center should be removed. We have a clock. It's behind the lights, so it's irrelevant to me. Um, Actually, there's a big digital clock on the wall right there that that stares me in the eye. So... um, uh, a petition for all the church staff to be clean-shaven. So that's, uh, that's good. That's an important conversation to have. A, uh, <laughs> you'll appreciate this one. Seems like worship pastors are the, are the, are the you know, the, uh, the kindling for all these fires here. A dispute over whether the worship leader should have his shoes on during the service. A huge church argument over the discovery that the church's budget was off by 10 cents. To end the argument, someone finally dug a dime out of their purse and gave it to settle the dispute. A dispute in the church, this is very relevant from our last, uh, from our church picnic. A dispute in the church because the Lord's Supper had cran grape juice instead of just grape juice. (laughs) An argument over what type of green beans the church should serve. Uh, this is important. Two different churches reported fights over the type of coffee. In one of the churches, they moved from Folgers to a stronger Starbucks brand. In the other church, they simply moved to a stronger blend. Members left the church in the later example. I've always felt like church coffee was like Chick-fil-A coffee. It's bad regardless. You can't get it right. I mean, you're at a point of desperation when you're drinking church coffee. Uh, this one's good. An argument over whether the church should allow deviled eggs at the covered dish. <laughs> Satan, deviled eggs, I mean, right? <laughs> A disagreement over using the term potluck 
instead of pop blessing. No pot. pot. Pot's fine. Pot's fine. It's the luck or the blessing. And a, a church member was chastised because she brought vanilla syrup to the coffee service. It looked too much like liquor. I was thinking back over, I've been in the pastorate for almost 20 years, and I was thinking back over the course of 20 years, and I was trying to think what, what sort of strange conflict comes to mind. And I think what comes to my mind the greatest is that one of the most longest and most drawn-out business meetings was about the church organ. Um, we had an organ that had a brass plaque. The organ was donated by somebody, not because the church wanted an organ. Isn't that a great gift, right? I want to bless you with this, with this, and well, we're not looking for it. That's okay. We want to bless you with it. And so they donated an organ, one of those, you know, the big, the big wooden ones, I mean, the set over here, you know, they donated an organ so that their daughter could play it. What was interesting is that when I got there, neither the donor or the daughter went to the church anymore. And the organ got struck by lightning. Now, I, I, sort of, I sort of feel like that if God strikes something in the church with lightning, that that's God sharing his opinion about something. I mean, just, that's my thoughts. The organ sat on stage unused for years. I mean, it, it sat there. It was something that they had to dust off. It's not very charitable. It, didn't, it wasn't unused. It's where the bass player said his Bible. And it was a great place that a potted plant set. And so the decorating committee always had something that they could set something on. Uh, did a stellar job in both those places. But again, the church got struck by lightning. It zapped the church organ. I know what God was communicating to us in that moment. The organ was toast. It needed, a, no pun intended, it needed a whole new control board. And it was going to cost a couple thousand dollars to, to fix. And so the unused organ was now unusable. Okay? It came up in a church business meeting. Preacher, what are we going to do about the organ? Well, Sister Susie, nobody's played the organ in years. I'm not exaggerating, years. Well, but it's, it's, it's got struck by lightning, so we've got to do something about it, right? Well, three factions began to form in the ensuing discussion about the church organ. The largest faction, but also the quietest faction, was the faction of let's just get rid of it. It just takes up space. I'm a fan of getting rid of stuff. I mean, if it's taking up space and it's not being used, get rid of stuff. I mean, there's no point in keeping stuff. There was a smaller faction, and that smaller faction was, let's keep it and fix it in case we use it in the future. And Baptist churches are notorious about this, this mindset. Let's keep it. We're not going to use it today. We have no plans to use it tomorrow, but let's keep it in case 20 years from now we get the inkling to use it, okay? And then my favorite faction that came out of that was the third faction. And it was a very small but very loud faction. And the very small, loud faction, this was the solution to the, to the fried church organ. Are you ready, Spencer? Let's pay a teenager to take organ lessons so that they can play the organ in the church service. And people started to embrace this idea. And I started looking for the teenagers to line up to take church organ lessons. And, you know, none of them were interested. You know, you make eye contact. They all kind of hang their head. 
Like, I ain't taking organ lessons. And I finally said, what happens when we pay this person to take organ lessons and they leave to go to college? Well, then we don't have an organ player anymore. Oh, well, that's a good point. And so finally, somebody, my music minister was sitting in the back. He was not making eye contact with anybody. He did not want any part of this conversation. Finally, somebody looked at the music minister and said, what do you think we should do? And he melted. I've never seen a man melt, but he knew that, that he, he was in a lose, lose, lose situation because there's three factions. And he finally said, well, we don't use it. We haven't used it. We're not going to use it in a long time, and it currently doesn't work. Let's get rid of it. Guess what happened? Unanimous vote to get rid of it. We spent an hour debating, and we had a unanimous vote to get rid of it. You know, the church today is sadly uh, goes through these things more than it ought to. And sadly, the church today is going through this. A lot of churches are going through this more and more division over the COVID and the vaccination and all those sort of things. A, a friend of mine was fired this week from his job at National Religious Broadcasters because he wrote an op-ed for USA Today, and he appeared on MSNBC. And he was telling people why he personally chose to get the vaccine from his Christian, from his Christian conviction. And he lost his job over it. I'm going to say something that it might be unpopular, but it needs to be said. If our politics inform our life more than our Christian faith informs our life, we're in serious trouble. If, if what our news of choice tells us is more important than what God tells us, this is going to be a rough go for us. This had better inform us first and foremost. This had better tell us how to think and what to think and better inform our opinions about things. When we look at the political climate of our day, I really find that there's only one affiliation that really counts. It's not whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. The only affiliation that really counts is do I serve the Lord Jesus Christ or not? And all the other stuff is, is extra. Do I serve Jesus or do I not? If we'll, if we'll settle there then all the other stuff is ultimately somewhat petty. Our infant church in the book of Acts has weathered some pretty serious storms, right? Every outside assault on them, however, only results in the church growing and strengthening. We can persecute them, we can drag them before the councils, we can arrest them. Everything seems to only make them stronger. And we're going to beat them within an inch of their life, and they're going to walk away rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer reproach for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that happens to them externally only grows their numbers and increases their, their, their standing and their, and their power in the community. But we need to understand that Satan is a very formidable foe. And Satan understands that when, when the outside assaults fail, he's very quick to stir up trouble within. And we've seen this already with Ananias and Sapphira, but here we see it again. We see another crisis beginning to brew inside this church, and we pick up in Acts chapter 6, where this crisis is brewing, and it is a serious crisis. We read this because we talk about Acts chapter 6 when we're talking about deacons, right? This is our deacon ordination passage. This is the, the creation of the deacon ministry. But what's happening at the start of Acts chapter 6 is a controversy that has the potential to derail everything that the church has done. However, led by the Holy Spirit, the church manages to rise to the challenge, and the results are, guess what? Church continues to grow, 
greater love, greater unity in the body. Acts chapter 6, I would invite you to stand with me as we read these words together in Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples, they had a business meeting, and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And they sat before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Father, I thank you for the powerful word that we see contained in the book of Acts for the problem, the solution, and Lord, for your blessing in the outcome. Lord, I ask you to guide our conversation today as we seek to bring honor and glory to you and point people to Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Chapter 6 begins with a report about good things happening in the church. Good things are happening. Again, it's, it starts with kind of a generic intro. It said, now in these days. This means some time has passed. Now, we don't know how much. We don't know, you know, has it been a week? Has it been a month? It just says that, that there's been some, some things happen. There's some, been some time that's passed. Up until, or up through chapter 5, it feels like the events are always back to back to back to back. Like this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and they got arrested, and they got released, and they got beat, and this happened. I mean, that, that feels like the trajectory through the first five chapters, but we get here, and it feels like some time has passed. Luke says, in these days, but look what's happening. Disciples are increasing in number. That's an important phrase. Disciples are increasing. That means what? That means that the church is accomplishing its mission. They've been told by Jesus to go and make, and they're doing it. They're accomplishing it. They're seeing that happen. Disciples are being made. We even see in chapter 6 that the church has organized a, a kind of benevolence ministry to help take care of the needs of the widows. Again, the New Testament places a, a high value on widows, as, as we do. And there is a call to minister to the widows here in Acts chapter 6. But in the middle of all this, there is trouble in the camp. And Luke doesn't spend a lot of ink explaining what's going on here. He doesn't get into the intricacies of the issue. But based on what we read here in Acts chapter, verse, chapter 6, verse 1, this is a very serious issue. What's going on? Well, one commentator explained it this way. He said Jerusalem had a large minority of Greek-speaking Jews. These were the Hellenists, Jews who didn't speak Hebrew because they had lived abroad for centuries. They'd returned to Jerusalem because it was their holy city. Many of these Jews had returned so they could spend their final days in Jerusalem. As a result, there was abundance of Greek-speaking women who had outlived their husbands, the resentful native, uh, native Aramaic-speaking Jews discriminated against them. In fact, the Pharisees held these Hellenists in utter contempt. 
considering them to be second-class Israelites. So what happens? The church starts to grow, people start getting saved, and you start to see these widows convert to faith in Jesus Christ. And now within the church, you've got a group of of native Jews who become Christians, and now you've got a group of of not native Jews who become Christians. And in God's grace, he's squished them all together in one body, and he's called them to love each other and care for one another and serve one another. And all of this is happening here in the church. We need to understand this. Conversion conversion does not automatically erase all of our biases and prejudices okay we understand that in christ we are new creatures but we also understand that we become christians we are not perfected we've got a lifetime of things to work out where we have to work out our salvation in fear and trembling is what the apostle paul says we spend a lifetime going through the process of sanctification none of us are perfect we all come up short but god is working in our hearts and the goal is is that the longer we walk with christ the more we look like him and the less we look like the world That doesn't mean that everything that was wrong with us is suddenly and instantaneously washed away. Now, I remember when I gave my life to Christ, there were certain things that changed instantly, but there's still things that I struggle with to this day. And the same is true for each and every single one of us. There were things that that changed. Some of you have one one of those drugs and rock and roll testimonies where you gave up all those things, but it doesn't mean that you're perfect. you still got things that you're working on. Okay? Your prejudices don't automatically go away. Our hearts are changed, and we know that God is still working, but it doesn't automatically make all those things go away. This group of less favored Greek speakers, they're looking around and they feel like, we're being overlooked here. We're being missed. And here's the thing. Maybe they were. I mean, maybe they were. Maybe there is a legitimate thing happening here. I mean, based on the list I shared at the intro, churches have fought over far lesser things. You know, this is serious. I mean, we would agree that if there's a group of widows that we're neglecting versus a group that we're favoring, that doesn't play well. doesn't sound right. I think this is an important word for us to consider this morning, especially in the racially charged culture that we've grown, that's grown up around us. I completely reject the whole notion of critical race theory that's being peddled by the spirit of this age. At the same time, I'm not so naive to say that racism isn't real. And it's got no place in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've got a problem with people of other ethnic groups, can I warn you that heaven is going to be an incredibly uncomfortable place for you. You're going to be surrounded with people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And so if you got a problem with brown people today, eternity is going to bug you for a long time. Understand that today. So we can acknowledge with our minds that it doesn't belong in the church, but we need to make sure that our hearts aren't creating a safe space for our prejudices to reside. This conflict isn't just a minor hiccup in the church's ministry. The apostles learn about it, and they have to step in and deal with it. This isn't a Sunday school class arguing about which which chairs they want to sit in. This is a serious issue. If somebody came to me and said, Pastor, our Sunday school class is fussing about what kind of chairs we want in a room, I'm going to be real honest. I do not care. You want sofas, you want hard chairs. I don't care what kind of chairs you want in your Sunday school classroom. Y'all figure it out. Work it out amongst yourselves. But if somebody came to me and said, hey, somebody in my Sunday school class is teaching critical race theory, 
you're going to get my attention then. Right? This catches the apostles' attention. They understand that this is something that needs to be dealt with. And they come in and they help to solve the problem. God gives them the wisdom to work this out. The first thing that comes to bear is simply this. Leaders can't do everything. Can't has nothing to do with ability. It has to do with time. There's just not time to do all the things. The apostles, I have no doubt, they were more than capable of overseeing the feeding program. I mean, between fishermen and tax collectors, they could have worked it out. I mean, they could have dealt with the logistics of feeding these people. They had all these diverse skills and abilities. It wasn't a matter of ability. If the church had a fishing team, there's no doubt that some of those apostles would have been right there ready to, uh, ready to lead. But they didn't have the time. They can't do everything. However, they did have extended time with Jesus that nobody else had, which means that they were particularly well-suited for some key tasks in the church. And among those, most critical was the ministry of the Word of God. Romans chapter 10, verse 14, How can they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they've not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Somebody had to preach the Word, and the apostles were most suited. Now, that's not to say they were the only ones. We find out about some deacons who got some preaching chops coming up, right? I mean, Philip and, and Stephen. Stephen gives one of the best defenses of the gospel in the New Testament, and he's a deacon. So deacons, y'all, y'all don't be afraid to preach now. I'll let, we'll let you, right? I've got a, a pastor friend that I chat with on a regular basis. We talk about struggles, successes, Invariably, we'll talk about those weeks where everything else takes up time, right? The, the funeral, the five meetings that you've got to go to, the counseling session, the, the complexities of managing an organization. And sometimes you get to Friday and you realize that you've not had really more than a passing moment to work on the sermon, but there's a saying in, this, in, in my pastor group here that Sunday's still coming. Sunday's still coming. Foster, Sunday's still coming whether you had time to rehearse well or not. Sunday's still coming. And, and what I've learned in 20 years is that this sacred desk right here that we call a pulpit, she doesn't care about how busy my schedule was. She doesn't care because she's still going to be sitting here on Sunday ready for the Bible to be opened. Pastors can't do it alone. The apostles can't do it alone. There weren't enough apostles to micromanage everything and ensure that there was faithfulness to the Word of God. I believe this with all my heart. There is not a job on this church campus that is below my pay grade. Now, there may be jobs that I'm not qualified to do, but there's nothing I'm not willing to do. Leslie, you may be out, and I am willing to play the piano for you at any moment that you need me to. They don't want me to do that, right? Chopsticks is not a worshipful song. I did learn to play Amazing Grace on the black keys one time, but, uh, but that's about the extent of what I'm able to do. But there are too many jobs for the pastor to do it alone. I tell our deacons this, I need them. Church, I need you. It's not, I can't do this alone. This is not about me and my abilities or Foster or Spencer or any other pastor who ever takes, a, takes any, sort of, any sort of authority in their church. We cannot do it alone. We will jump in. We will get our hands dirty at every opportunity. But as the church, the church has to be willing to get its hands dirty too. The apostles see this firsthand. Not enough time in the day. Not enough hours on the clock even the one I can't see back there on the wall. Without help, 
the remarkable story of this infant church would begin to fizzle because you can't build the church on the shoulders of this handful of men. The church is only built on the shoulders of the body gathered together. And the beautiful thing is that God has designed the church so that there is this Holy Spirit-inspired division of labor. This gets fleshed out later in Paul's letters as he begins to understand the role of the Holy Spirit empowering believers with gifts for ministry. But serving isn't just for professional Christians or those who get a paycheck for showing up on Sunday. Serving is for everyone who is in Christ. And we're all granted gifts by the Spirit for various kinds of ministry. But we see the important role of delegation taking shape here in Acts chapter 6 through what we call the birth of the deacon ministry. The deacon ministry here was a job that was specifically designed for waiting on tables. And we know, of course, you've heard this before, the, the word deacon means servant or table waiter. Generically, they were tasked with meeting the needs of the large number of widows represented in this church. We understand there's two biblical leadership positions in the church. You have the pastor. The New Testament uses some terms interchangeable for that office. You see words like overseer and elder. Those are interchangeable terms for a pastor. All those are titles for the same office. Each title points to a different function. You also have the office of deacon, which is recognized here in Acts chapter 6. What you don't find in the New Testament, you don't find committee chairman in the New Testament. doesn't exist. Our church got worked up a few years ago over the title CEO. Some of y'all remember that. Isn't it interesting that title's nowhere in the Bible, but we got all kinds of worked up about it doesn't exist in the Bible. The office of deacon isn't about ruling, however. It's about serving. It's about seeing a need and working to meet the need. And in the case of the church in Acts, the need was taking care of widows. Being a deacon is not about influence or power or authority. It's not about telling the pastor what to do. It isn't about running the church. It isn't about serving as some sort of secular board of directors. It's about seeing needs and meeting needs. And if the need is in the kitchen or if the need is in the nursery, or if the need is in the sewer out back. It's about seeing needs and meeting needs. Now, it might be tempting to think, we got pastors and we got deacons, they're taking care of everything. It means the rest of us can just kind of sit back and enjoy the show, right? Well, let's go ahead and derail that thought. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 says this, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. You see, serving in the kingdom is not limited to those who are set apart or ordained. Now, the church's deacons ought to set the example to the body in service. If there's a job to be done that helps the church thrive, then there ought to be a deacon who's in line to help make it happen. They ought to help set the temperature in the room, however, by their service, and by doing so, encourage others to step up and serve. So there is a challenge here for us. It's really twofold. First of all, to those who serve as deacons, how's your service? Are you setting an example of service to everyone else in the church? Are you filling in gaps, ensuring that ministry is moving, that the church is growing? The consequences of the deacon ministry in Acts chapter 6 is evident. Look at verse 7. The word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. To everybody else, are you doing your part, 
Or are you just hoping that all those that I'll dub the professional Christians are taking care of everything? Every single one of us has a job to do. But regardless of what our job is, we see here in the book of Acts that the preaching of the word and prayer are to have primary places in the ministry of a New Testament church. There's a lot of good things we can do in the church today. A lot of good things that we can be about. But good things can't be a substitute for the main things. As pastors, a lot of that falls on us to make sure that, that we're doing our part in ministry of the Word and in prayer. Note what the apostles say. We will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. That's not pop psychology. That's not self-help. That's not me standing up here and telling you how to have your best life now. That's not me leading in the latest Oprah theory about how you can live a successful life. That's not what this is. That's ministry of this book, which is why I preach through books of the Bible. It's hard to get off track when you just stick to that book. It's really hard to get off track. That's the Word of God. We believe the Word of God is central in our worship, and we give our lives to learning it, studying it, teaching it. More and more churches are abandoning this because the Word of God is triggering in our culture today. Because the Word of God demands a change, and it demands transformation. What we find is that in this, in this development in the church, that these men, these seven men who were set apart, are the perfect guys for the job. You see, what happens here is the apostles put this plan forward, and everybody agrees, right? It's a good plan. The church is gathered. They say, let's pick from among you seven men who we can give this ministry to. And the church says, this is a great idea. We're going to embrace it. The Bible says that it pleased the whole gathering. I don't know that you could ever please the whole gathering. I mean, how do you please the whole gathering? And this plan pleases the whole gathering. And now they handed the plan to the church and said, now you pick. You pick the people that are going to represent you in this ministry. They said to the church, you pick. You may miss this, but there is a wonderful little nugget hiding just beneath the surface here. Go back to the list of men. We see some names here. Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon. I think it's Timon. I think of Lion King when I see this guy's name. So I don't know. Parmenas and Nicholas. You go back in your Old Testament and find the prophet Nicholas. He's not there. You go back and see if you can locate anybody in the, in the Old Testament named Timon, or Pumbaa for that case. It doesn't exist. Why don't, why don't these names exist in the Old Testament? Because they're not Hebrew names. All of these men come from a Greek background. Now think about this. Who was the complaint group in the church? The, the Greeks were complaining that their widows were being overlooked and, and that they have a church meeting with everybody. And so the, the majority of the church are the Hebrews who do they choose together as the church to represent this ministry? They choose men of a Greek background to do this ministry. Why does that matter? It's 
What a remarkable show of unity. They could have said, you know, let's get our guys to represent this ministry so we can make sure that our ladies get the best care. They could have been sneaky about it. You know, they could have went back, you know, they could have had the traditional backroom deal where they all work out the plan in secret and they come out and say, uh, we're going to choose Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hezekiah and Abraham and these are going to be our guys. No. They choose these Greek men to lead the ministry in this remarkable show of unity. See, what's incredible about this, and, and this is how God is working in his church, is that even in choosing these deacons, you have this act of redemption. The church is on edge because of this, this, this appearance of racism. And the church says, this is not what we're doing. Let's let these men be in charge of this. So there's above reproach. There's no question. There's no, no sense whatsoever that we're doing something underhanded here. And what does God do? God blesses the whole process. God blesses the selection of deacons. Some of y'all have been in deacon elections before, and you think, how does God bless this, right? God blesses the whole process of selecting deacons. What happens? Look at, look at the end of, uh, look at verse 7. So we, we created a ministry. There's people who are leading it now. The apostles are free to pray and preach. And we see in verse 7, the word of God continued to increase. Why? Because the apostles were able to focus on it. And the number of disciples continued to multiply, not just add, multiply. We see more rapid growth of the church because the word of God is primary. Ministry is happening. The word of God is front and center. Disciples are being multiplied, even to the point, look at the last part of verse 7, a great many of the priests became obedient priests are getting saved how in the world can a priest get saved that's like the mormons knocking on my door and converting me to mormonism how did that happen well we go back to what i said to begin with remember what jesus said in john chapter 13 john chapter 13 verse 34 a new commandment i give to you that you love one another just as i have loved you you also are to love one another. By this, by what? By the love that's shared in the body of Christ. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Because the priests are looking around and saying, we don't have anything like this. The priest is, is looking around and saying, how is this body made up of all these different groups and all these different factions. How is this body functioning? Not like it's supposed to. A group of people connected only by the Holy Spirit of God, loving one another, serving one another, caring for one another, meeting one another's needs. If that is what we are communicating to a lost and dying world, Let's not be surprised to see a lost and dying world knocking down the doors. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I want to thank you for this text from Acts chapter 6. I want to thank you, Lord, for the call that you've placed on our lives to serve one another. And I want to thank you, God, for how you bless that, how you move in that, God, that, that if we will love one another, serve one another, care for one another, 
that if we will function out of our giftedness, that we will lend ourselves, lend a hand to, to the ministry, God, that you bless and you move and you work and you do great things in that. And so, Lord, help us to, to recognize that and we've got pastors who preach and lead and pray, and we've got deacons who serve, but it takes all of us, every last one of us doing our part for the glory of God. Lord, this morning I went out front and we had kids who were handing bulletins out. Now, they weren't digging ditches for Jesus. They weren't sharing the gospel with homeless folks under bridges. They were doing their part with a smile on their face, making sure that everybody who walked in the door was greeted and felt welcomed and loved. Lord, if a child can do that, what's stopping the rest of us? And so, God, this is a call certainly to our deacons, but it's also a call to each and every one of us that the church is only as strong as the service of her members. It's not about the pastor. and It's not about the, the person who leads music. and Those things that we place such a high priority on, Lord, are, are we lose the importance of ministering to one another when we place so much emphasis on, on a person. It is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ to whom we should place our, fix our eyes and that we would serve him. Lord, I thank you for those gathered here today. God, may we all be faithful servants of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.